Hi, my name is Colleen. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. I will bless the Lord who advises me. Even at night, I am instructed in the depths of my mind. I will always put the Lord in front of me. I will not stumble because he is on my right side. That's why my heart celebrates and my mood is joyous. Yes, my whole body will rest in safety because you won't abandon my life to the grave. You won't let your faithful follower see the pit. You teach me the way of life. In your presence is total celebration. Beautiful things are always in your right hand. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Pam. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 3, verse 7, 17, through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, become imitators of me and watch those who live this way. You can use us as models, as I have told you many times, and now say with deep sadness, many people live as enemies of the cross. Their lives end with destruction. Their God is their stomach, and they take pride in their disgrace because their thoughts focus on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to a savior that comes from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform our humble bodies so that they are like his glorious body by the power that also makes him able to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and miss, who are my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stand for the gospel reading, please. Y'all didn't get me that time. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Praise the Lord. Uh, I love the whole body of the church. Get that in mind now. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right, I'm going for the reading of the book of Luke. Chapter 24, 36 through 43. While they were saying these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were terrified and afraid. They thought they were seeing a ghost. <laughs> he said to them, Why are you startled? Why is dark doubt arising in your heart? Look at my hands, look at my feet. It's really me. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bone like you see I have. As I said, I showed them my hands and my feet. He said, I'll show them my hands and my feet, because they were wondering and questioning in the midst of their happiness. He said to them, do you have anything to eat? I'm hungry. Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish. Taking it, he ate it in front of them. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Gospel read. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Gracious Father, we thank you that your gospel has gone forth. The good news about what you have done in and through Jesus Christ. And we pray as the people who've been gathered together by your spirit that you would continue to let the good news of great joy seep into our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. 
My name is Jason Jackson. I serve as the associate pastor here at New Life Downtown. If you're visiting, thanks for being here. If you're watching online, we see you kind of. Uh, you see us, but you get the idea. Uh, and if you're wondering where Pastor Glenn is this morning, our lead pastor is preaching up at New Life North this morning, so I get to be here uh, with you. So if you were watching closely maybe this last week or maybe watching really, really closely like I was, uh, on Wednesday night, the Washington Nationals won the 115th World Series. And there's like 10 baseball fans in the house that are excited, former Expo fans really excited. Uh, what's fascinating to me about sports is when something like this happens, we have this epic like full seven game World Series, there's all this build up, and the very next day, half of the news articles are about next year. <laughs> it's like, oh great, you won, now let's talk about what's next. And the truth is we do this all the time, right? We're sort of obsessed, we sort of obsessively talk about what's next, about what's to come. We do this in every industry, in the arena of finance, what's the next Amazon? In the arena of automobiles, like when are those self-driving automated car things going to happen so I can move elsewhere? Um, what, what is next in education? What's the next trend? What's next in politics? That makes its way into the news every once in a while. Uh, we're always sort of thinking about what's the thing that's going to come. Even in the church, we have people who call themselves church futurists. And they're just talking about what's the future of the church look like, analyzing trends and all of those kind of things. I think communion's still bread and wine in all of the conversations. Uh, but there's this constant conversation for us about the future. And even personally, it starts for us or it gets really real when we get into high school. Right? And that conversation moves from that sort of like innocent, fun conversation of kids, like what do you want to be when you grow up? to the really concrete conversation about where you're gonna to go to school, right? Something that, like the plan is now different. When I was a senior in high school, I was uh, a like clerk at our local grocery store. Uh, we didn't have, they had like multiple names when I was there, but it never mattered because everybody just called it the store because there was one. And so there wasn't like, you didn't have to have like, I'm going to Safeway or Trader Joe's or Sprouts. It was like, I'm going to the store. I don't know what they're calling it today, but it's still the store. And when I was there, it was like every night I'd stand there, you know, sort of scanning groceries and every person asked the same question. So what are you going to do next year? It's like, we talked about this last week when you were in, <laughs> but we're having the conversation again. And then they would finish and the next person would say, what are you going to do next year? It's like, did you not? listen to what it's like just right there you were there we were having this conversation did you miss that but my favorite moment was always when people are like well where are you going to go to school and i'd say well i'm going to go to oral roberts university in tulsa and they're like oh i didn't know you wanted to be a dentist <laughs> that's kind of a hard conversation to recover from <laughs> But those conversations start for us at that point where we start talking about college planning. And then when we get to college, it's career planning. And then when we get into our first job, then it's financial planning. And then before you know it, then it's retirement planning. And there's this constant conversation, one after another, that's talking about the future and how the future sort of determines how we live in the present. What we want to be true and how we live now in order to sort of hopefully make that happen. And then at some point, the conversation sort of shifts 
from talking about finances and retirement to talking about estate planning. Now talking about wills and trusts and advanced medical directives. And now the conversation is not so much planning for our life, it's planning for our death. And the conversation is not so much more about what do you hope to be true in five years or 10 years. The conversation is now what do, be ho- what do you hope to be true for others when you're gone? And all of a sudden, it's a different conversation. And it just shifts to talking about those things. But there is actually another question that comes up in the middle of this that we don't talk about enough. Not so much about what do you want to be true for others after you die, but what do you want to be true for you after you die? What is the hope for you after death? Not just your hope for others, but what is actually the hope for us? And how does that hope actually make a difference in our presence? How does that hope actually orient how we live here and now? This week, we're in the middle of a long sort of series that we're going through the book of Philippians this fall. Our series is called Complete Joy, and we're looking at this letter that Paul writes to this church in Philippi. Around 50 AD, Paul starts this church, and then he's writing now to these people that he's grown in love and affection for, and he's writing to them about five or six years later, and he's actually writing to them from prison. He's most likely in prison in Ephesus, in Ephesus, and he's there and he's waiting trial. And one of two things are going to happen when he comes to trial. Either he's going to be released, exonerated, and said, go on your happy way, Paul, or he's going to be executed. This is what's going to happen. And it's, it's near. He doesn't know exactly when the date of the trial is, but when he gets to trial, there's going to be two outcomes, either life or death. And so because of that, Paul spends a couple of times in this letter actually thinking about, reflecting on, and talking about death, and specifically talking about life after death. And what I want us to do is I want to take a look at a couple of those passages today to see what those passages teach us about Christian hope. What is our hope as followers of Jesus. But before we begin, I want to reiterate something that Pastor Glenn said last week. In his opening conversation kind of about kids' sports, he was making a distinction between objectives and outcomes. saying that we have an objective in something, and then there's also an outcome in something. And what happens oftentimes is we begin to confuse the two. That the objective of kids' sports is to learn how to play the sport and to learn teamwork and all those kinds of things. The outcome is, at times, winning, right? But sometimes we can begin to think, well, the only thing that matters is the winning part. Forget the rest of it. The same thing can actually happen for us in the church where we start to confuse objectives and outcomes. And what he said really clearly last week is that the objective of our faith is to know Jesus, That the objective of the Christian faith is to know Jesus. Paul talks about this way. He says, I've considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the object of our affection. Jesus is the objective of our life of faith. The outcome is what we're going to talk about today. The outcome is where we're going to shift into that conversation. We're going to begin Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. And he says this, that it is my expectation and my hope. 
that I won't be put to shame in anything. Rather, I hope with daring courage that Christ's greatness will be seen in my body now as always, whether I live or whether I die. Because for me, living serves Christ and dying is even better and I don't know what I prefer. Oh, I missed a verse. If I continue in this world, I get results for my work, but I don't know what I prefer. I'm torn between the two because I want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is far better. Here's Paul in prison, facing the reality, maybe even the immediacy of death in his own life. And he speaks about death in a strikingly casual manner. It's a little bit like, what? We don't get a sense in his words of any fear, of any anxiety, or any worry. I don't believe that means that he didn't feel those things. Paul's human, right? Feel those things. I think what's happening here is that Paul has found a, great, a hope that's greater than any anxiety or fear that he experiences. And he's clutching onto that, and he's holding onto that, and for us can feel like a little bit like, ah, I don't know exactly what that's like. I remember as a kid, I occasionally had recurring nightmares. Most of those were sort of this strange amalg amalgamation of all the horror movies I watched as a kid. You know, like Friday the 13th meets Nightmare on Elm Street, and then something strange would happen in my dreams, and it would just happen over and over again. Uh, but I, I don't remember waking up a lot sort of in, with night tears. But I do remember several times laying awake at night unable to go to sleep, primarily because I was terrified of death. And just feeling all of this anxiety or fear about the unknown of that. And in those moments, just going to my parents' room and saying, ah, not even really fully knowing how to articulate what was going on. I remember even a couple times in college and as a young adult driving and sort of suddenly in those moments, just out of nowhere, feeling panicked about death and needing to pull over to the side of the road and just pause and breathe and pray and having that sort of thing crash into us, crash into me. And here Paul's facing the inevitability of this, the reality that this could be really soon for him, and he's responding with hope. He's responding with something else that's going on. I think it's important to note here before we go on, though, Paul is not seeking to die. He's not trying to die. He's not placing himself in a point of just saying, like, I'm going to do this so that I can die. He's recognizing that this is what's coming in and having to face the reality of that. And here he is able, with the hope that he has, to accept it and even welcome death. He's able to confront the possibility of what could happen with profound hope. And he describes the hope this way. He says, I want to leave this life and be with Christ, which is far better. See, Paul has the hope that when he dies, that if this happens, he will be with Jesus. He'll be with the one that he said he considered everything else in his life a loss compared to knowing this one. 
Now he knows as he faces this that the one who means everything to him, the one who's captured his heart and all of his affection, the one who orders his steps, the one who's the objective of his whole life to know him, that he will actually be with him. Paul says, this is my hope upon death to be in the very presence of Jesus. It's interesting here that Paul doesn't speak about going to heaven. He doesn't use that language. He uses the language of being with Jesus. Now we know that where is Jesus? Jesus is in heaven. So it's not wrong to speak about it in that way. But for Paul, he places the emphasis on the person, not the place. The emphasis for him is on the relationship. It's on the Lord. It's on the one that he gets to be with. And his expectation is that upon death, he will experience greater communion with Jesus than he could ever experience in this life. This greater intimacy, this greater joy, this greater peace, this greater proximity, this greater presence. And it's that withness that makes death gain. It's that withness of being with Jesus that Paul can then say death is gain. What he's saying to us is that our hope as Christians for life after death is to be in the presence of Jesus. This is our hope that whatever else that we might say or sort of think about or imagine as it relates to the afterlife, whatever we might put together from like precious moments, sort of little ornaments or like stories here, or movies or books about any of those things, whatever else we want to say about the afterlife, the important thing is that Jesus is there. That it's Jesus is the one who we hope to be with upon death. The outcome of knowing Jesus in this life is being with him in the next. The outcome of making Jesus the objective of our life is that we get to be with him in the life to come. That is our hope. It's also our very present hope today for our loved ones for those who have already died in Christ. This last Friday was All Saints Day. It's the day where the church remembers all of those who have gone before us, all of those who have died, and who are now in the presence of our Lord. This Sunday is All Saints Sunday. It's why the linens are now white instead of green. We remember this truth, that those who have gone before us are no longer suffering, they're no longer grieving, they're no longer mourning, they're no longer longing. They are in the very presence of Jesus. This Friday, as I was thinking about that, I made my kids chocolate chip pancakes, which is a Friday or Saturday morning tradition. And we sat down at the table and were eating, and I just began to tell them the stories of some of the people I was thinking about. I was thinking about my great-grandma, Cora, who died about a month before she turned 107. And I know that her prayers made a difference in me coming to Jesus. I know that her prayers were heard by God and that it brought her great joy to see me come to faith before she passed. I thought about Maxine Upmeyer. Maxine Upmeyer was this woman, this older woman in the church that my family sort of attended on occasion who was the fifth grade Sunday school teacher. And Maxine talked about Jesus like she knew him. It was the first person that didn't just tell me stories about Jesus. She talked to me about 
Jesus. She, she talked about him as if she just talked to him that morning. It's like, what is that? And that planted a seed in my heart. Those of you doing kids' ministry, it's planting seeds for those things in kids' hearts that will someday burst forth. I thought about Doug Adams, who was this young man or this uh, man and, young man in our community, uh, married a couple of kids who, when I came to Christ, was just overjoyed, sought me out to have a relationship with me. And he passed away several years ago from cancer in an early age. I thought about um, before Cora was born, our oldest, my wife and I had a miscarriage early in our first trimester, and I thought about that child. And as the day went on, I thought about you. And the people whose stories you've shared with me, stories of your parents, your spouses, your kids, your loved ones. Thought about those in our own congregation whose suffering has ended and who are now with Christ. And it's that reality of our hope, of the presence of Jesus in the life after death that undergirds our mourning. Is that that causes us to mourn in a different way. There's still mourning, but we mourn differently. I was thinking of this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 where Paul says this. He says, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the people who've died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. It doesn't say so that you won't mourn, but that just we mourn differently. We mourn in hope. We mourn with hope. We mourn sort of undergirded by hope as we still name the losses that we feel and the pain that we're experiencing and the desire that we have, the longing and the missing, especially as we come into the holiday seasons, as we think about those people and those particular moments in our lives, we mourn, we grieve with romance, but we do so with hope that they are with Jesus and someday so will we. We mourn with hope. But here's the interesting thing about this is that this is actually not our ultimate hope. That there's actually a hope that's greater than this. That we as followers of Jesus actually hope for something better than heaven. It's what N.T. Wright calls a hope for life after life after death. A hope beyond this moment. And Paul talks about it here in Philippians chapter 3, and he says it this way. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we look forward to a Savior that comes from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will transform our humble bodies so that they are like his glorious body, and he'll do so by the power that also makes him able to subject all things to himself. The central proclamation of the Christian faith, what we call the mystery of faith in our liturgy, is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So as followers of Jesus, we actually look beyond the day of our death to the day of Christ's return. We look beyond this day to another day, the day in which Jesus will come back. And the scriptures say that when Jesus returns, if we're alive, our bodies will be transformed. And if, we're if we've died already, that our bodies will actually be resurrected. 
that our hope for life after life after death is bodily resurrection and eternal life in a new creation. That this is actually our great hope. This is our ultimate hope is bodily resurrection and eternal life with Jesus in a new creation. We actually say this whenever we say the creed that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. This is what we believe. But the challenge is sometimes is like, what do we mean by that? <laughs> what do we mean by bodily resurrection? What is that thing all about? Like I've heard it, but what do we actually mean? It can be helpful sometimes in conversations like this to start by talking about what we don't believe. <laughs> Right? So we don't believe is resuscitation. We don't believe it's like, you know, not quite dead and then coming back. Like, it's not that. This is full death to something different. So it's not resuscitation. It's not some sort of transcendence. It's not like a Christian, another Christian way of talking about going to heaven. It's not just like a, a metaphor for that or some way of talking about exalting or moving into another sphere or another dimension in any way. And it's not reincarnation. It's not like coming back in a different physical form. The best way to me to think about it is re-embodiment, for lack of a better term. Re-embodiment into our physical material body, which has been fully transformed and fully redeemed. The same and yet completely different. The same and yet gloriously changed. In this passage, Paul says that our bodies will be transformed from humble bodies to be like Jesus's glorious body. In other words, Jesus's resurrection, what we see in Jesus in those stories in the gospel after the resurrection, what we see in Jesus is the prototype for our own resurrection. The scriptures call him the first fruits of the new creation that is yet to come. One of my professors, Ben Witherington III, described it this way. He said, Christ's history is our destiny. I love that. Christ's history is our destiny. Another way that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses the analogy of a seed. Small, humble, rather unimpressive, gets buried in the ground, dies, and what comes out of it is full and abundant and beautiful and life-giving. He says, maybe this is a way that we can talk about it. He uses it to kind of walk that fine line between talking about essential continuity with what was buried and extraordinary change with what comes out. Essential continuity that material matters, our bodies matter, God made them to be good, and yet they're not what they were intended to be. So they need to be changed and transformed, resurrected, made new. There's a change that happens. He says it this way. He says it's the same with the resurrection of the dead. A rotting body is put into the ground, but what is raised won't ever decay. It's degraded when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in glory. It's weak when it's put into the ground, but it's raised in power. It's a physical body when it's put into the ground, but it's raised a spiritual body. He describes that change as from a physical body to a spiritual body. 
The translation actually is not great. The better translation would be a, tran a transition from a soul body to a spirit body. In other words, a body that's fully animated by the soul, animated by the soul. By what Paul uses the soul that we just talk about kind of ordinary human life. It's a body that's animated by that versus a body that is fully animated by God's own spirits. Body fully animated by the spirit of the living God. This is our present body, this body. It's corrupt, it's weak, it gets sick, breaks, trips, <laughs> gets tired, wears out, dies. But our resurrection body will be incorruptible, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and hopefully coordinated, and can sing. <laughs> I mean, that's my hope, is I can actually sing and people don't run away. It's a great hope that I have. This body is exactly what we see with Jesus as his resurrection. These are some of my favorite stories in the Bible. Like Jesus with his disciples after the resurrection. Because we see in those stories essential continuity, right? Jesus is recognizable. Jesus can be touched. Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. I have flesh and bones. Jesus walks and he talks. And I love the fact that he eats, right? It's like, give me some fish. Like, I want to eat with you all. He eats and he drinks and he cooks and he does all of these things. And yet at the same time, he like can disguise himself <laughs> and he appears and he disappears and he walks through uh, locked doors, right? And more importantly, he in that body ascends into heaven. That body is physical, but it's also transphysical. It's a body that has been raised and can actually be in the presence of the holy God. That's what we have to look forward to. It's that kind of body. So that's what we see. So a couple things as we think about the implications of this. First of all, is this resurrection is Jesus' work, not ours. It's important to always remember that this is something that we cannot do for ourselves, right? Dead people don't have agency. Dead people don't have power to do these things. This is an act of God. Jesus' work, resurrecting us. Not an achievement of ours. It's a gift that God accomplishes by his power. Paul puts it this way. He says, he will transform our humble bodies so that they are like his glorious body by the power that also makes him able to subject all things to himself. The same power by which Jesus will rule the world is the same power by which he will raise us from the dead. The second thing to note here is that the body is actually the last to be raised. The body is the last to be raised. The rest is already begun. The resurrection life is already in us. That it's already begun. This body cannot contain all that God has for us. This body has to be redeemed. This body has to be resurrected. This body has to be transformed in order to contain all that it is that God has for us. But as a glimpse of what's to come, he's deposited the Holy Spirit inside of us as a guarantee of that future. We have a foretaste 
of glory divine. Already inside of us. Last week when we were going through water baptism, celebrating those together, we celebrate that we have died with Christ and we have been raised to new life with Christ. So our death has already begun. It will finish someday. Someday we'll finish what baptism started. Someday we'll finish that. But in the same way, resurrection has already begun inside of us as well. The Spirit of God is already resident inside of us. Resurrection is already here. The body is still waiting to be resurrected someday, but internally, who we are is already experiencing the power of God. Paul puts it this way. He says, even if our bodies are breaking down on the outside, which is happening more and more every day for me, breaking down, the person we are on the inside is being renewed every day. The person we are on the inside is being renewed every day. In other words, your heart is already coming alive in Jesus. Your heart is already experiencing forgiveness, already receiving love, already being made able to love God and to love others. Forgiveness is already working its way deep in your soul and working its way out that you might forgive others and live in reconciled relationships with one another. There's already things that are true about you because of how God made you to be, who he called and intended and created you to be. Those things were marred by sin, but they're already coming alive because the resurrection is already at work inside of you, renewing you, restoring you, recreating you into the person that God always intended for each of us to be. His Spirit is already causing things to come alive, already filling us with hope, already removing shame and fear and guilt and setting us free to love Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, to know who we really are and to give our lives to Him. We already can know Him. We already have his presence with us, even as we wait. So what do we do in the meantime? We let that future orient our present, and we stay the course. We let Jesus and his future be our North Star, by which we set our lives to, and we stay the course. We stay on this path. Paul put it this way. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Stand firm in this way. So in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering and loss, of mourning and longing, we wait with patient expectation. We keep our eyes on what's to come. We don't know when, but we wait with hope. We wait with expectation. We trust that in the fullness of time, Jesus will come again, and he'll bring the entire weight of heaven to bear on this place. That he'll bring the entire life of heaven to bear on our lives. That he will come again, and the dead will rise. We live our lives in light of that future, and we wait for it, with patient expectation. 
And we do that. We practice that every week here at the table. I love the fact that when the scriptures are picturing new heaven and new earth for us, that they oftentimes resort to images of a banquet. Because when I think about bodily life, resurrected life and new creation, I think the idea of eating together just sounds pretty great. <laughs> of thinking of this, an extended banquet table, and Jesus with all of his followers gathered together, eating in his presence, celebrating the defeat of death and sin and evil in the grave. Feasting together, celebrating together, dancing together, laughing together. That this is the picture we get. And we get a snapshot, a preview every Sunday as we come to the table and we feast at his table as we wait for the table that's to come. We come and we reorient ourselves to this future. We remember that Christ has died. We remember that Christ is risen, but we look ahead beyond our death to the day of Christ's return. And we hope for that day when we eat together at his heavenly banquet. And we come and we let that reorient us, orient our present. And we start that process by confessing, confessing sin, recognizing that there are numerous times that we chart a course by something other than Jesus. And we, oh, then we come back and we reconnect with the one who is our North Star. And we ask for the strength and the faith to continue to stay the course. And so we say this in our prayer of confession as we ask Jesus to do this for us by his spirit. Let's pray this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning?